empathize with them, put yourself in their shoes. And, and that just, to me, is good communications. It's not an issue of journalism or salesmanship. It's being empathetic and it's relating to the buyer. And if you can develop that simpatico and that language and be empathetic towards what he or she needs to hear, presuming it's authentic and it's relating to your product, you're in a good position then. Welcome to the Food for Thought Lunch Break with Steve Bookbinder podcast, the show that gives you things to think about when you're trying to make more sales without all the seriousness of conventional sales talks. Enjoy and learn as he makes fun of sales training, salespeople, and sales trainers, including himself, all while giving you battle-tested strategies that work. Now, here's your host, Steve Bookbinder. Hi, everybody. I'm Steve Bookbinder. I'm your sales coach. And uh, my promise to you is to give you all kinds of advice that basically falls into this umbrella of coverage. How can we make more sales? And how can we make more sales easier? And by the way, if you can't make more sales easier, you probably can't make more sales. Everybody has to work hard to make one sale occasionally. But if every sale was that hard, you could not make more sales. So we're talking about how to make more sales easier. And to do that, we need help. We need all kinds of services. And I want you to be introduced to uh, sales experts and uh, people that help salespeople and support sales organizations and give us uh, more information about that. One of my friends and one of my mentors and somebody I go to for advice is somebody that I'd like their advice to reach other people, the listening audience, all of whom will benefit. And so I'm very proud and privileged to introduce to you Henry Feintuck, PR expert. Henry, could you tell us a little bit about the company, that your company, your current company, and also the uh, international global network that you are a part of? So first, Feintuck Communications is an award-winning technology PR firm. And we really specialize in helping both emerging companies, privately held, and public tech companies to do a better job of selling and presenting themselves to the external world. And, and there are many different channels and tools we use. We'll talk about them in a couple of minutes. One of the ways that we've tried to level up our boutique firm, aka reasonably small, against some of the large mega international PR firms in the industry, is by being part of an international network of independent PR firms. And so, in fact, I serve as the CFO of an organization called the Public Relations World Alliance. And the PR World Alliance consists of 14 currently different independent PR firms, similar to ourselves, some larger, some smaller, spread throughout Asia, Europe, North America, and now in South America in Brazil. And we gather once a year in person, trade best practices, learn from each other, constantly on the phone and on the email, trading tips, advice, seeking counsel for clients that are looking to penetrate international markets. So it's a, it's a real great way to level up without the overhead of a very large PR firm. So even as a boutique uh, service company, you're able to uh, come to a client with global resources? Can your global network uh, uh, join you when you're servicing an account? Kind of one of the wonderful uh, fallouts of the internet, true in sales and true in communications. And the fact is that you can be a sole practitioner and yet you could be pitching a very large firm if you've got the expertise that's suitable for that organization. Uh-huh. Uh, I know that you have an NDA with a lot of clients, but can you describe, if not the names of the clients, the kind of clients so people have a sense about this 
scale of some of the categories that we play pretty heavily in are the clean tech or, or energy market segment, financial services and fintech, ad tech and uh, ad marketing and professional services and anything else where technology is an enabler and allows our organization to do a better job of selling a widget or producing a service uh, using technology to, to improve that delivery. Very interesting. Okay. I think a lot of people, when they think PR, if they're not in the business, if they're not you, if they don't work in your place, if you say, them, what do you think PR does? Uh, you and I spoke about all the ways that public relations can help a company make more sales, get more leads, promote a product, make it easier to make more sales, augment and expand upon an ad campaign that they may already be doing. So help uh, the audience understand, let's say I'm a company and I, uh, I'm i a leader of a company. I want my people to get more sales. I want more leads. What kinds of things could I be doing with public relations? Many of which I'm guessing are things that I don't even realize are part of public relations. I think the common impression of what PR is, is putting out a press release. It could be defensively, it could be because somebody else is doing something in the market, you want to react to it, uh, or you've got a new contract or new service, and so you go out and you draft or you hire a PR entity, and they put out a press release, and you wash your hands, you put it on a PR newswire, and you're done for the day, and you check the little box. And that, I think, is a, sadly, even at the C-suite level, a pretty basic understanding of what PR is about. And PR is far more than that. It's a real powerful strategic tool, similar to many other marketing arts, that allows you to actually have a direct communication, build expertise, express your thought leadership, uh, really get out there and impress prospective buyers of your products and services in terms of your smarts, your organization's technology, product, whatever you're, you're offering to the marketplace. That seems like a very digital concept, digital in the sense that famously buyers, business to business buyers, you know, they're armed with the internet. Every study says that even before they'll talk to a salesperson about whatever problem they're trying to solve, they'll go online, they'll do research, they'll be influenced. And studies show, depending on the study, 50 to 75% of the customer journey happens before they're speaking to a, a salesperson, I'm assuming you're spending a lot of that journey looking at content and a PR company is in a position to place that content in front of the people that need to be influenced. Well, just, just think of it yourself as a buyer of a product or a service. If you go out on the internet prior to making that purchase decision, you might want to look at press releases about that company, what's been said. You might want to see whether or not they've been written up in the Wall Street Journal or the key trade. And was it positive or negative? Was the product or service trashed or praised? So, I mean, even in your own navigation on the web, if you see an article about a company and it's pretty progressive and it's saying that that company is doing a solid job in the marketplace and their technology is first rate and their products are reliable, you're probably going to have a be pretty predisposed towards that company versus reading an ad about the company where you know that the objectivity behind the copywriting, it's written by the copywriter. Well, there's a copywriter in PR that's writing that press release, but ultimately we need to get that press release accepted and read and rewritten by a journalist. 
And so if we can get it by the journalists, and I don't mean sneak it by, but actually deliver strategic content that's valuable to his or her readers or viewers or listeners, then we're actually doing them a service and we're doing the marketplace a service and indirectly, of course, we're helping our client or ourselves. So the selfish interest of the publication to take your PR influenced or PR written article and, and use it in their own publication is because they think it's going to help their readers. It's actually uh, and that And that's the only reason for the existence of that publication. It's not to satisfy me, a PR practitioner or a client that I work for. It's really to deliver news and information that's actionable and useful for readers or consumers of their media outlet. And so it's the proper job of a PR practitioner, whether one has that title or not, to deliver content that is objectively valuable, free of hyperbole, positions the company or its product or service in a pretty progressive manner, and leaves the reader thinking, that's something I ought to check into. That sounds like a really solid product. So you're able to get, I mean, it almost sounds like it's too good to be true. Have your content in a publication, but it's not an ad, and it doesn't say, sponsored content. It's legitimate organic content. It's really PR is the kissing cousin of advertising. And the difference is the the language we use, the description of the content, and the fact that we're trying to act and think like a journalist and not like a marketer. And so we're under pressure the same way that a marketer is or a salesperson to communicate key features, benefits, and, and other aspects of a product or service but you want to do it in a way that seems unbiased, impartial, objective, like a journalist would do. I'm a former journalist myself. I worked at the CBS TV as a young camper coming out of college. I worked in radio journalism on air. And it's those same skills that make many PR professionals really successful in their, in their chosen vocation. Okay. So, you know, we live in a, in a, what I, what I think of as a world that's uh, key. Everybody wants concierge level services. They want kiosk pricing, kiosk. They want to do it themselves. So you mentioned before, people think PR is just a press release. You could kind of do it yourself. You get the PR Newswire or similar wire service you can get that. What, what do you, what do you see as the mistakes that, that companies make? What are they not doing right when they're marketing themselves, when they're doing it by themselves? You can do it properly by yourself, but it's taking your proprietary interest and putting it to the side and trying to be of value to the reader. So when you're a salesperson, you're also trying to communicate the value of your product or service to either improve that person's company or whatever they're going to be doing with the product or service that you represent. So informationally, when a PR person in-house or through an agency is trying to sell or help to predispose an audience favorably towards a product. It's really about being objective about the audience and their needs, what they're looking for, and the types of products and services that will improve or enhance their professional or personal lives. So it really is taking yourself out of your own proprietary, what's it gonna do for me? and turning it around and saying, what's it gonna do for you, the reader? I'll give you an example. One of the tools that people can use to show their thought leadership and, and really 
become a shining leader in their industry and therefore invite inquiries into their product or service is to write a bylined article. And so the process of bylined article is you study the different trade publications in the industry segment that you're interested in selling into. You kind of, after reading several issues, get a pretty good flavor in terms of the type of articles, the type of industry issues being discussed. Presuming you have a valid point of view about an industry issue and you can indirectly bring your product or service into that discussion, you can offer to write an article, typically somewhere between 800 and 1200 words, sharing your expertise about the industry. Every salesperson knows their industry inside out. So, but share that expertise. Talk about the things that work well. Weave your product or your service indirectly in and out. You might even talk about some other products, not by name, but other solutions in the marketplace. But the fact that you're writing about a product or service and you're the expert and you're showing the examples and you're getting the byline and the link back to your website, that's the pay dirt for you if you're being objective and writing that bylined article. That's a pretty good example. And bylined articles, once they're written, live on on the internet, and then you can repurpose them in so many ways in social media channels. You can do speeches on the same topic of the bylined article. You can do reprints. You can legally put it up on your website with permission from the publication. So just there's a lot of afterlife and a lot of ways to leverage that going forward. Oh, interesting. Okay. Now, it sounds a little bit like native content in terms of a service that a company could buy. So if I was the uh, decision maker and I'm going, I don't have an unlimited amount of money. I, I have to pool my money where, where it's most effective. Am I, will I have a better result or outcome potentially with the kind of bylined article you just talked about? Or am I, would I get the same thing with a uh, native content that I bought? If you're doing it authentically, and being authentic is really what I'm trying to express here, then a bylined article is in fact native. It's your expertise. It's your years of salesmanship, industry knowledge that you're sharing. You're giving it away. You're not giving your product or service away. You're giving your knowledge about the issues, about what works and what doesn't work, what obstacles are out there, and, and, and what things you can do to overcome those obstacles. And it so happens to be that your company plays a role in that market and offers one of the solutions. But that is authentic. That is native. Um, and that's really one of the best ways to get out there and express your thought leadership. Okay. Let's say you have a new product. You want to get the word out. You want to get leads. What would you recommend as a kind of a PR campaign that would generate leads? Well, I'm going to underscore the word campaign that you just used. Any one thing is going to happen, it'll hit in the marketplace, and it'll go away. Engaging in a campaign is the right attitude, because any one thing that you might do is going to pass very quickly and have very little impact on the marketplace. An example of a thing would be you write a press release announcing your new widget. Some publications are going to see it, some won't. It'll live on a little bit through Google on the marketplace, but over time that's going to fade and it'll have a minimal impact. Now let's take that same product introduction. Let's time it to a trade show that your company is exhibiting at. Not only are we going to issue a press release, but perhaps we'll do a little press briefing in our booth and demonstrations for the media. 
will have some literature associated with that new widget that you're producing. Maybe you're giving a talk or have a little reception in a private room off the show floor where you're going to bring in some people, bring in an industry expert, and talk about the importance and the impact of that product in the marketplace. When you go back uh, after the trade show, you might do a blog that recaps the introduction of the product and some of the marketplace reaction you heard. You might do a bylined article talking about the development of that product, the people in the industry you spoke to, to obtain expert commentary and input so that you could make sure that in designing that product, it was really meeting an industry need. And so what I've just done for you is taken that same product introduction and spoken about five or six different things that we can layer on that strategically surround that product launch and will make it much more important, more memorable, and live on through many more marketing mediums. Now I'm going to just switch gears a little bit. One of the things that uh, I've always appreciated about you is uh, you've got a lot of sales advice, you've got a lot of business advice, but you, you know, you're a guy that started from, you were with a bigger company, you started this company from scratch, you, uh, all of a sudden you've got big clients, you're selling in a competitive field, you're selling a high-end service in a competitive field to very discerning customers. So you've got a different kind of a sale than everybody's got. But for the people that have a sale like that, where you're selling into uh, the advertising community, where you're selling into the senior executive level, high-end, a lot of competition, a lot of subtlety, what advice would you give to a salesperson who has that kind of a sale? What are some of the things they, they should be doing or some of the mistakes they should avoid? A few things. Number one, I'd stress authenticity. I think that a, a buyer can smell when you're brown-nosing him or her. And so really be authentic. Do your homework on the prospect that you're going to meet with. You may not know literally their strategy. In my industry, knowing the strategy is critical because I can't create a PR campaign to, to achieve a client's business objectives unless I really deeply understand. But you can go out on the web prior to that sales meeting, look at their press releases, look about the positioning of the company, look about the articles that that company or that executive has been featured in. Has that person spoken? Have you looked at any of their speeches? Do they do blogs? So you can really do a lot of homework and then make sure that as you shape your experience, and your knowledge and your know-how, even in the absence of knowing their particular strategy, you can authentically relate to that company, the world they're living in, and what they're trying to achieve. So authenticity is what it all comes down to for me. Mm -hmm. As a small business, even though you're part of a larger business, but it's a small business, and you're an owner salesperson, so you're wearing both hats, yep. we've got a lot of people that listen to this podcast that are in the same boat. They're the salesperson, they're the owner. I think entrepreneurial selling is a little different. If for no other reason, A, you've got the uh, biggest motivation, but also I think the customer just treats you differently. If you walk in as a salesperson, you walk in as the owner, I just think they talk to you differently. But what advice do you have as a, uh, you know, that balancing act of balancing selling and servicing and running your operation and everything else? What's your advice to find that balance? Think twice about your career path. <laughs> but, uh, but, but, you know, it's, it, it, it is an interesting balancing act. And I find at times when I am giving PR advice and strategic advice to my clients and then I begin to slip into sales mode, at, at times I'll laugh and I'll actually say to the prospect, 
you know, now I'm going to switch hats and I'm going to, I'm going to wear the, my salesman's hat and I'm going to lay out some of the issues that I want them to understand. And I think to me that is, again, being authentic because I've, I've switched. My messaging is now a little different. Mm -hmm. I'm giving them the reasons why they ought to consider partnering with my company versus another company in the field. I've given them solid advice. I've given them things to do, things to consider, the types of elements to be in the campaign. At a certain point, I need to switch gears and try to close the sale. And so that's when you've got to put on that salesman's hat and, and kind of bring it to a crescendo, recap the advice you've given, why you think you understand their company and can be a good partner for them. That's the way that I handle it, but that balancing act is always there. Yeah. I, I, you know, it's a funny thing that you said that. The, the literally saying the words, now I have to act like a salesperson or now I have to put my salesperson hat on. It's like you're doing a role play and you're, or you're in a play, not a role play, just a play. And uh, let me tell the audience the new character. And I agree with that because you're, you're making, you're going over the top in a sense to say that the thing that I'm doing now, this isn't me. This is, I'm, I'm required to do this thing where I have to close the business so we can all eat and stuff. But you know, you listen to the words that you're using. We're talking about partnering and supporting and all oh, that sounds not commercial. But, you know, nobody can get paid around here unless uh, nothing happens until somebody's getting paid. And then, you know, the, it's commercial. So I, I, I think it's an interesting dance that we have to do. And it's important that we have to do that. But I like the way you, that you're basically saying, when I'm playing the part of the salesperson, that's not me. That's not <laughs> me. For me is the helping guy. It's the idea guy. The part where I'm, I'm I, you're uncomfortable. Usually I'm even more uncomfortable having to play this part, which I'm forced to do. There's one other thing to it. I think that people in today's world don't want to be sold to. I mean, I've probably every world, but I think it may be in particular in this world that buyers been searching and using their influence by different things. They're talking amongst themselves. I think they're looking for somebody they can trust. So if you're too salesy, I think it comes off uh, right yet, away. Yet at the same time, we're all salespeople in every aspect of our lives. I, I call them the C-suite pretty frequently. I'm sitting with the CEO. Uh, CFO, uh, Chief Information Officer. And so they're selling too. They're selling to a different audience. They may not be selling a widget. They may be selling a product concept. They may be selling an investor on putting money into their company. Um, and so I think when I step back out of that role and I say I'm wearing my salesman's hat, I often get a nod and a smile because I think they relate. The fact that we all play multiple roles in our lives and in business and one role is doing the job we do, whatever it is, writing, selling, uh, consuming, building, but then we're convincing, or we're proud and we're showing, and, and those are just two natural roles, and I guess as a salesperson, you, we all have to find that comfort level in terms of how you're gonna do that without breaking character, maintaining your authenticity, and trying to convince that person to stop the search and go with me. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of that, extending that, I'm going to ask you about uh, how you got into sales, especially because you started off as a journalist. And, and just, to, just to help you with your answer, I'm seeing more and more people have a, a sales pitch that is like the generic sales pitch, which I think works against them. Everybody is selling this. I have a solution which will make you more efficient and productive and is ROI positive. Interested? Is it a machine? Absolutely. 
Is it a phrase? Is it a book? Is it a SaaS platform? Is it a like what is that thing? And literally, I'm seeing that that it's in marketing speak. So I would think that somebody in journalism or with a journalism background would have been more word choice sensitive, which I believe is really the key. Is can you speak in the language that the customer is speaking in, not just use a generic marketing speak? The problem today is everybody is time pressed. And you don't normally get 10, 15, or 20 minutes to paint the picture of the history of your company, the industry problem that you've tried to go out and solve, and, and the product R&D and the evolution of your product until you've gotten it to this wonderful stage today, and here's what it is, and here's what it can do for you. That's great in a certain type of sales meeting, but more typically, you've got 15 to 20 seconds to hook somebody's interest. And if you don't give them the top line of who you are, what you represent, and the value that you bring to the table, you, you may not even get to that 10 or 15 minute subject. So as a journal, that's not very different than what I did in journalism. You know, you'd write a 10 second teaser about the next story you're going to do coming back from a commercial break. Well, if the listener goes away to the bathroom and flips the dial, you're cooked. No customer. So you really need to speak the language of the listener, the buyer, empathize with them, put yourself in their shoes. And, and that just, to me, is good communications. It's not an issue of journalism or salesmanship. It's being empathetic and it's relating to the buyer. And if you can develop that simpatico and that language and be empathetic towards what he or she needs to hear, presuming it's authentic and it's relating to your product, you're in a good position then. Yeah. I like your notion of it's not the 10 minutes. It's not give me five minutes and in the fifth minute I'll win you over. If it's if it doesn't immediately and it's first the 22nd rule. That's if it doesn't even if you if they're asleep after 20 seconds, it's over. That probably made you a better salesperson just thinking in terms of I don't have long to get their attention. I gotta get right in, right in. That's great. So then now let me ask you, how did you get into sales given that you started I would think kind of far away in journalism? Well, again, I think that selling is part of everyday life now and almost anything you do, but leaving journalism and moving into PR as part of an agency environment, you're automatically part of the sales team. You're either selling the prospect looking for an agency or you're working on a client campaign, delivering results and selling the effectiveness of those results back to your client and making them appreciate what you've accomplished. There are many times as a younger kid in the business when I would deliver a 40 or 50 page status report and the client didn't have the time to look at it and so didn't appreciate the fact that all of the money that they were paying to the agency and all the people working on the account to achieve business outcomes was actually happening and being represented in that status report, they didn't have time to read it. And, and so selling, it's, it's just part of everything we do. And when I meet with a client, I always try to take their temperature and find out you know, whether or not they're getting, is the phone ringing? Are your customers saying they've seen you speak at a conference? Or uh, are, are you getting some form of feedback to indicate that the PR campaign has been effective? Because I'd rather know, honestly, that it's quiet out there and they're not getting that feedback because that might mean we need to retune the campaign and make sure that we're retwisting it so that we're consistent with the business outcome that that client is looking to achieve. But, you know, the salesmanship language, it's part of everyday life. 
So when I visualize both public relations and ad agencies pitching their idea to the client, so you know it's in the context I'm trying to win the business. I don't want to seem too salesy. The other competitors are going to be like me, not too salesy, but determined to get the sale equal in equal measure. So, and you talked about preparing for a meeting and doing research, and everybody knows you should prepare. Not a lot of people actually do prepare or prepare enough. So you eventually have the big reveal. You come in and go, here's our idea, and I'm thinking mad men, like you're blowing them away with your idea. What is the, how do you prepare for that? Like, is there a team meeting? Do you like, you sit with a glass of wine by yourself? Do you pull people together? How do you get that big, big idea? So just today, we did a presentation to a project client, an Israeli company uh, in the financial technology space. And we did a three-month project for them, and they wanted us to provide them with a year-long action plan for 2020. And so we met with the CEO of the company, and we spent a bunch of time trying to understand their pain points. What are they trying to achieve? What are the new products that they're going to be rolling out in 2020? Uh, what's the competition like? What is going right or wrong with their current PR representation? Truly, what are they hoping to see at the end of 2020? What does success look like to them? So when we get all of that input, and, and some is shared and some is not shared, and then we go out and do our own research, there's a little bit of salesmanship here in that we're going to come up with a presentation and there are going to be certain blocking and tackling methods that are going to be part of virtually any PR program. We're going to do press releases and bylined articles and, and a lot of the things. But, but we're also looking for that madman moment where we come up with some clever, unique, or very different way of breaking through the clutter. And that means getting our team together and investing a lot of staff hours and actually brainstorming ways of accomplishing the business objectives of the client. And I'll mind you, the client doesn't always say, I need a program to build distribution. The client will say, I need more media coverage. I'm not getting my fair share. Well, why do you need more media coverage? Well, because the other guys are getting a lot more coverage. Well, what would the coverage be meaningfully to you if you obtained it? And, and if you keep pushing and drilling down at a certain point and you peel the onion back, you're going to learn that either they're not getting their fair share of RFPs or the highlight of their product technology is not known in the industry or they're being bashed by a competitor or you're going to find out at, in the final analysis what their pain point is. When we understand the pain point, then we can go ahead and devise a creative PR strategy for helping them to combat that and actually grow in the marketplace. So it's a process. And in PR, I wish I could say we push a button and the PR plan comes out on the back and, and we hand that in. But we're typically putting in 10 to 20 to 30 hours of research, creativity, writing, and then presentation. If we're really going to try to be authentic and deliver a plan that's precisely geared for the needs of that client. You know, that's such an interesting comment. Everybody in the world knows, find the pain, probe to find the pain. Like, it sounds like a clinical activity. Probe to find, and then once you find the pain point, just match it up with your solution and bing, bang, boom, sale. And you're saying, oh yeah, well, you got to get to the pain point, but they're not going to articulate the pain point or they're not going to give it to you in a language that can point to the solution because if they, probably if they could, if they could put it in that, with those words, they would have already bought the solution. So you're saying, yeah, you got to find the pain point, but to dig out that pain point, 
you and the team have to look at the research, look at wh wh what you're looking at, and then discern, uh, like like Sherlock Holmes, you got to deduce what it must be, but it's not going to be on the surface. I often think that a lot of our best creative thinking in a PR campaign is the unpaid portion, and that is the discovery, the research, and the creative development phase, and that's when there's no guarantee that we're going to get selected. But the way the agency business is today, there is a certain amount of creative investment that must go in, and it is that process that you just outlined. That's great. You like being in the PR business? Love it. It's uh, different every day. The uh, blend of companies that are high-tech, low-tech, uh, uh, different types of highs and lows and opportunities. And the best part of it is achieving a win for your client. When you hear that an article you ran wound up in a $10 million investment in the company or a big sale that they couldn't crack into, article ran in Women's Wear Daily and the client prospect called them and they've got a sales meeting set up, that's an incredible high. And that's probably as valuable to us as the compensation that we receive. Wow, that's great. One last thing, you've been motivational, you've been inspirational, and you've been educational. Appreciate that very much. So uh, I'd like to ask all my guests this question. What's your favorite sales advice that you could share with our audience? It's really about being authentic. And I've said that before in our conversation. It's, it's taking your expertise, your know-how, your accomplishments over the years and helping other companies achieve their strategic objectives and, and just funneling that into who you are as a professional and, and letting your prospect, your, your sales prospect see that you know, your, you know your craft, you understand their business, and you're out there to help. So it's, it's really all about authenticity. That's great. We, we talked about playing another character, playing the sales character, but uh, being clear about who you really are. And that's, that's great. And that's a great piece of advice. Thank you, Henry. You know, this is all part of the overall understanding of what could we as salespeople do? Selling is hard. Selling can be depressing. Selling is a lot of rejection. But there are tools we could use. There are strategies we could follow. And there are services that we could buy to make our sales better. We could get more sales, more leads. You've certainly uh, opened our eyes to uh, all these uh, things that PR can bring to us. Thank you so much, Henry. And I look forward to the next time that we get together over drinks and dinner. Take care. Thank you for listening to Food for Thought. To get your free sales playbook, visit dmtraining.net forward slash podcast. And be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss any of Steve's jokes and helpful resources. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next week.